Socialist think tank Origins is simply about socialism. What socialism is, what it means to people, and how it can improve our lives. We speak to people from a variety of backgrounds, both well-known and unknown, to find out what they think socialism is, and develop the ideas around socialism. Hello and welcome to Socialist Think Tank. Today we're here with Lauren Conway. Hello, Lauren. Hiya, you all right, Paul? I'm absolutely fine, thanks, and it's great to have you here. So I'm going to go into the first question that we always ask. What is socialism to you? Okay, what is socialism to me? Um, I was thinking about this earlier, and I think the knee-jerk thing for me personally is to go online and start, like, looking for definitions of socialism and I think that's such a restrained way to look at it um you know so I kind of threw all that to one side so socialism to me is a really liberating thing where people have the freedom to decide for themselves how they spend their time how they spend you know resources um, and how they relate to one another and also I think it's a world where people are able to where people are able to fulfill their potential and I don't mean that in like a meritocratic way I mean it as in having the time to pursue their interests and having a good enough education to be able to you know follow whichever path calls to them and you know having the resources to be able to change that and you know if there's a problem being able to allocate the creativity into fixing that problem for themselves for the communities and to really better you know to to progress for us to progress so that was a really convoluted answer a really good answer and the thing is is like a lot of people's misconceptions around socialism is it's very restrictive and it's very much like you've got a you know it's a set of rules the government will be telling you what to do I suppose some people argue that there is a type of socialism where where that does occur, but that's not the type of socialism you're talking about then, is it? You're, you're definitely on the, it's a freedom rather than it's a restriction. Oh, 100%. Like, um, the amount of people who I know who are in jobs that they themselves admit are bullshit jobs to them, you know, jobs that upset them doing them you know selling alcohol to alcoholics all day at Weatherspoons and watching their health deteriorate or you know stood in the street trying to give credit to people whose credit ratings are so low that they wouldn't be able to get it anywhere else at you know, ma massive high interest rates and um, you know selling fast fashion that falls to pieces or you know having to throw food in the bin if they work at Tesco's when they know people are going hungry and um, if that's what freedom under capitalism looks like I don't want it, you know. Um, it doesn't exist when poverty exists and when exploitation exists. So there's a there's an anti-exploitation thing there, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things there that you've brought up that I think probably a lot of people don't realise that that's like integral to capitalism. That idea that you know if it doesn't make money then throw it away. You know if it's you know you're talking about throwing away food at Tesco. Do you think people really like understand that that's going on? And you know, do you think that's understood by the public that these things really do happen? I 
think people know that lots of bad things go on, but I think people don't believe that they have the power to change things. And they don't think that it's worth dwelling on too much because it'll only make you upset. And what for? Because, you know, we don't, we don't have power. Um, and I think that that leads to people feeling really disenfranchised. I mean, if you look at Corbyn's last election campaign, people liked the policies on the doorstep. When you explain the policies to people, people agreed, you know, with all the points that I was making, but they didn't believe that a government could do that, could do all these good things and could impact their lives in a positive way. So they just dismissed it as utopian thinking. And I think the right of tried you know hard in a sustained campaign over decades to you know make that you know to make it seem like you know anything that you know that progress is too much to ask for and that it wouldn't be possible apart from they do think that um that sales of everything and consumption of everything should go up by five percent a year so that kind of progress is possible apparently but um that's their utopia isn't it and like is that a sustainable idea like the idea that we should always consume five percent more and and make five percent more you know is that a sustainable thing no no um economists have tried for years to try and detangle economic growth from uh, carbon emissions and they haven't been able to do it. So for instance, when the new, when the LED light bulbs came out, the inventors were really excited because it had the potential to really reduce energy consumption for light. Um, but what actually happened, because obviously the running costs were a lot cheaper for these light bulbs, um, we just ended up selling loads more and putting more lights in places where we didn't have light before, like on LED billboards that flash, you know, 24 hours. People started leaving, you know, office lights on all night to show, you know, how big and shiny the skyscrapers were. Um, and we ended up actually using more um, energy for, for um, more energy for lighting because the costs were reduced. And that's what happens in, under a system that, you know, puts economic growth before everything. You know, everything's got to be more and more because if companies don't increase growth every year, then the competitor will. And, and you know, that'll mean that they're going to be put out of business. It's a completely unsustainable system because, you know, we don't have endless resources, you know, endless growth on a finite planet is just not possible. And we're starting to see the fallout from that. And, you know, people who live closer to the equator have been seeing that for very many years now and are starting to lose their homes to, you know, waters rising, natural disasters, famine. And, you know, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the coming decades. Yeah, that that's really worrying. So um, do you, like, I suppose, does your socialism then, does it come from a place of wanting to have the power to change things it does yeah so i've not read enough theory but i sometimes think i'm probably more of a communist than a socialist I, I definitely i would say i identify as a socialist but i tend to think that with everything that we know and all of the the measures that the people in power have taken to stop socialism from happening um, and you know to continue this mad um addiction to growth at the expense of everything. I really don't think that the 
electoral system is going to give us a way to change things properly. And that's really sad. Like, I haven't always thought like that, but I just don't think if voting really had the power to change things in this country that they'd let us do it. You know, look at what the media did to Jeremy Corbyn, you know, for run-of-the-mill, you know, he's a social democrat, these policies weren't radical, so weren't anything that's not been tried before, you know, nationalisation and um, and they treat him like he was enemy of the state and people were scared of him. Um, I, I really don't think voting is going to be the way to do it, unfortunately, I think, you know, yeah, I don't think they'll be just, they'll be willing to let go without a fight unfortunately yeah I, I think there's there's a lot i relate to there with regards to the system and in the westminster system it isn't designed like i do think that democracy can can get us somewhere and voting can get us somewhere but it's going to have to come from elsewhere i think because like um westminster is designed to close ranks like I often thought even if Jeremy Corbyn had wanted to put his social democratic agenda to to the public and had had he become prime minister I often think what would happen next like would the parliamentary labor party have allowed him to do that you know there's a lot of people in there who we we've probably met that didn't want that agenda at all and you know I I always thought my my idea was always that they were going to form a government of national unity in the interests and against this wild these wild ideas of trying to make poor people have a slightly more comfortable life and t taxing rich people. That was always my, my feeling around it. So you were saying like, um, I'm interested in the communist thing. What, what do you think a communist is? Or you said you didn't really yeah. know that much of the theory. But, yeah. yeah. So for me, um, communism is like the workers having control over the country and it's like a more direct form of control whereas to me socialism is you know bringing in uh, social policies and you know nationalization and having more forms of collective ownership um, and it's almost like putting restraints on capitalism so you still have uh, private property and people can still accumulate wealth you know vast wealth but it's kind of taxed more um, so it's almost like regulations on the current system whereas for me socialism is like sorry, for me, communism is, um, you know, the community is actually taking that power for themselves and deciding, right, we've got these resources, how are we going to share it out? Um, and I just think it's a more, you know, forward thinking radical. No, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, it's, a, it's a tough question, isn't it? It's a really tough question. Cause like, you know, like, um, I think it's a really misunderstood concept because a lot of people think being a communist is simply, um, you know, like say if someone says to you, pass the salt and you do it, that's like a, a communistic act. It's something that you're doing. There's no benefit for you in passing the salt. You're not saying, well, give me five pounds and I will pass you the salt. It's just like that doing something for the good of, of, of humanity. That was the idea originally of communism, I believe. Um, but like, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what people per, uh, perceive communism to be, like the Stalinist sort of way of organising and, and stuff. I don't think that appeals to people. So that word's really tainted by that. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would agree. 
I just think like whatever good things that we could bring in through democracy for socialism, if you know capitalists are still able to amass wealth, then they will use that to hijack democracy and to get rid of you know the progress that's been made by socialists in government. That's what I think. Right. That's a that's a. I think most people would agree with you on that one. That's really really on point. So, like, um, have you always felt like you're a you, that you're a socialist? Have you always like identified with that word and you're saying now that you, you might be changing on on that and what you define yourself as but have you always like defined yourself as that or was that something did you always have those values or have you changed over time i've definitely changed over time so my first exposure to politics was like a heated conversation um in a family like a family gathering where my extended family were talking about how they're going to vote BNP as a protest vote um, and I was kind of shocked because I knew that they were racist and my response to that as a like 15 16 year old was to go and look up some other parties um, and so I tried persuading my parents to vote UKIP instead <laughs> because, <laughs> because I agreed with their economic arguments I didn't know anything about politics or economics or inequality um, but you know in my head you know the more people in the country the more the resources are going to be shared and so the worse it's going to get for everyone because you know we're living in times of scarcity um you know we've had an economic crash we need to tighten the purse strings you know this must have been like 2007 8 um so yeah i've, I've come a long way politically <laughs> uh, but that's obviously me as a novice um well, someone who doesn't know anything about politics, that argument made sense to my teenage brain. So, and also been brought up in very extremely white Barnsley with like, you know, fascist upbringing, you know, all these racist ideas around you kind of, it's this water that you swim in. So then probably around 16, I had a friend who was into the Socialist Worker Party, Workers' Party and they used to like organize around our college and i think one night i was just cold we were just hanging around on car parks as teenagers do um and so i followed them along to a meeting and it was to watch uh, the film pride yeah about the uh, lesbians and gays support the minors and i watched it i enjoyed the film um and then afterwards they started having this really intense political discussion and i just didn't have a clue what anyone was talking about and i felt like a real imposter um, and I finally plucked up the, the courage to ask um, a question. I'm like, who's Marx? Like, what is Marx? Um, and they kind of laughed at me and I felt really um, embarrassed. And then I think afterwards people were talking about uh, tuition fees and education for all. And I just said, well, we we've not got like endless money to spend. You know, not everyone has to go to university to be a doctor or a nurse. Uh, and they started like arguing at me and then I just didn't think about politics again for like ooh, until I was working in an office at like 20 years old I think probably like four years later um, and by that point I think I'd you know had a little bit more life experience um, I was working in an office in Sheffield I've made friends who were from um, like who were Pakistani and black and 
Um, I think I've done a lot of drugs and I don't know whether that has something to do with like opening your mind a little bit to <laughs> different things. And I'd traveled a little bit. Um, and it was my job to chase unpaid tax from pensioners that particular day. And I hated that part of the job. Um, I worked in a pensions payroll office uh, for a big company called Aon Hewitt, who sponsored sponsor Man U. So we had like, we paid the pensions for people on like Raytheon's payroll who would have potentially helped develop the atomic bomb, like BMW footballers, but then also like coal widows. And it always seemed to be like the coal board pension where we'd have to be collecting the tax from them. You know that they were that were unpaid. It just seemed so cruel to me, uh, and I hated doing it um, because these people didn't have a lot of money, and it was just an awful part of the job. Uh, and I noticed at that lunchtime, it had come out in the news that Starbucks and Boots had been evading tax. And I think because it related so much to what I was doing that day, it just set me off. And then I started to notice like other injustices, and then. Um, I would listen to MIA's music and I figured out through listening to her experiences of being growing up in Sri Lanka um, I researched that and I started to realise that you know we're not the policemen of the world we're not doing good um, you know in interventions abroad and then I started to look into Iraq and it just kind of started a little domino effect um, and then when I came around to vote in the first general election that I could vote in, it was the 2015 election. So at the beginning of the year, I'm like, right, I need to get my head around this politics thing because I've not got a clue. Um, and I did one of those anonymous quizzes. It's called Vote for Policies. You know it? I'll explain it for, just in case people don't know. So basically it has the policies of all the different political parties um, and it blind it, it asks you, you know, which um, areas of policy you care about most and it blind tests you so you don't know which party you're selecting. You just select the policies that speak to you the most and that make the most sense and that you think are the best. Um, and I came out green, like massively green. Um, and then I went onto the Green Party's website to have a look and find out more. And I kind of, I agreed with everything that was on there. Um, and they were very anti-austerity at the time. Um, more so than Labour um, and also, you know, cared a, a, about the environment. But that wasn't really, I didn't really see that as an important issue. I was mostly there for, you know, economic justice and social justice um, and, you know, to improve public services and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, went onto the website and I read that they don't accept corporate donations and they don't have, you know, big union donations. Um, and they get most of their funding from the membership and just like small donations. So I tried donating £10, but I clicked the wrong button and I joined by accident. And that was my first foray into politics. <laughs> I, st <laughs> I started getting phone calls from this really nice like um, man from Sheffield Greens. Um, and he kept asking me, um, oh, you're from Barnsley, we want to set up a branch in Barnsley. Would you be interested in doing it? And I'd be telling him about my holiday that I was going on and stuff and just having a chat back with him because I'd still not realised that I'd joined the party or what that meant or whatever. He's like, well, I'm not really interested in your holiday, but if you want to set up a meeting, let me know. And then they kept, they emailed me. And I thought, you know what? 
why not? And I did, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing at all. I'd never been to a political party meeting before. I didn't know what half the policies meant. Uh, you know, I could get, I didn't know about them in detail. And then I was hosting meetings um, and, you know, organizing fundraisers and a launch party and writing the constitution, like not long after. And then we stood an election candidate <laughs> and I was like, um, I can't remember which position I had. I don't know if I was like the returning officer or I was something. I was like a bunch of roles in this election. And like we were so far into the election and like I still didn't know what constituency was. So like I helped run an election campaign. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, I'm too deep into this to ask now. So I'm just going to have to. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> So, go on. <laughs> I was going to say, this is one of the best stories I've, I've ever heard about getting into politics. It's like the UKIP gateway drug into the Green Party. It's uh, it's incredible. Um, sorry, continue, because I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah, so I made loads of mistakes, obviously. I did a fundraiser, and I didn't think to arrange anyone like to speak about the green party and it became increasingly obvious that the people in the room expected me to talk in front of people and i was just so nervous and i don't think i even got more than like a sentence out i was just like i'm setting up the green party i'm not a politician we need help and that was about it like um got the last band up and we had some good bands playing by the way in barnsley like people were into the green party at that that time uh, it was a bit of a waste putting me in front of them uh, with my level of experience, but I'm glad that they gave me that opportunity because it was really empowering as a young woman, you know, in hindsight, having people actually believe in you and giving you resources to do something. And I'm really glad that I had that experience of, you know, being trusted um, and being encouraged. And they gave me a lot of training as well um, as things went along and like experience in policy making and taking part in policy making at the conference, all members can in the Greens, um, was a really empowering thing. And it helped me with my political education, being involved in that dem really democratic process because all members were involved. So we all talked about it in depth and um, it were a really positive and creative experience for me to get into politics through the Greens, I think. So, after that, um, I came up to university in Durham and uh, it were all about Corbyn. And I think we were really happy when Corbyn got elected the first time as leader. And I met some really cool activists around the People's Bookshop in Durham. Uh, and people seemed to have really good heads on their shoulders and um, I was really impressed with like their politics and stuff. Um, so I joined Labour in order to vote for Corbyn in the second election because, you know, I thought they were really good for the country and really good for the party. And, uh, you know, we had a chance at getting a, a real socialist in government and that was really exciting. Um, so, yeah, I joined Labour and I've kind of got mixed feelings about Labour. It wasn't the same empowering um, experience as the Greens. And I'm really glad that I had that comparison because you know, I've seen lasses in, in Labour who barely get chances to speak at, um, at meetings 
um, and really don't get anywhere and have really good ideas, but you know, who labor don't take advantage of all their experience and knowledge and enthusiasm that a lot of their members bring to them. Um, so yeah, it was a bit of a disempowering experience and I've been left quite disappointed by the Labour Party, especially as I've learned more about the inner workings and how it's basically rotten from the top down. Um, so yeah, that was a spook. And I'm kind of wondering now, would it have been better if Corbyn had never got in power because, you know, all that energy would have been placed potentially in a party or in a union or, you know, in a movement that could have made change because they didn't have these people at the top completely undermining the work that was being done. Yeah, I can uh, sympathise with that. I also think that um, it's brought a lot of good people together. Like, say, for example, I met you because of the Labour Party and I met so many other good people because of the Labour Party. So there, there are definite bonuses to that and there's definitely like-minded people coming together and, and trying to make a difference. But there is that kind of almost like you've got to serve an apprenticeship in the Labour Party. Well, we, did you deliver leaflets in 1987? Well, I wasn't born in 1980. Well, I was, but like, you know, you, you would be in a situation where you, I wasn't born then. Well, you know, you, you're not allowed to have an opinion yet. Um, you know, that seems to be what a lot of people in the Labour Party think. But that's just people, isn't it? That's just like, you know, people who get set in the ways. Um, that's a really, really, that's your origin story there. That's really good. Then you can make a film out of that. It's really funny as well. Um, but <laughs> um, so with regards to um, what you've done since then, and I know that like, you're you're a pretty direct person. You've got really well-formed opinions and you've taken action about that. So like, you know, um, I want to talk to you now a little bit about direct action and what your opinions are there. Yeah, I think I've been ready to uh, go further than I suppose dissent within, you know, <laughs> what the system allows electorally. Um, I think it's been justified, you know, taking it that step further for a long time. But I found it hard to kind of get involved with these groups and I don't know whether I throw off like, I don't know, undercover officer vibes or whatever, but every time I've tried to get involved with like a more left-wing kind of anarchist group, maybe I'm too formal, I'm like, hi, this is Lauren Conway, you know, I want to get involved with the Antifa stuff. Uh, maybe I've just come across too green or whatever, or maybe there's just not that many groups operating in the north. So there's a lot of more radical stuff going on down south to get involved with in terms of like class politics and green politics. So the first time like I'd seen anything that was like, right, we're going to take some risky direct action was Extinction Rebellion. And I jumped at it. Uh, I really did. Like I'd recently found out, you know, the depths of what was going on with the climate crisis. And it's been something that's obviously been of great concern to me for a while. I learned more about it in the Greens, but then when the IPCC report was released by the UN in 2018, uh, that really laid, laid it out, you know, saying we need to radically change what we're doing. Otherwise, you know, by 2050, we're gonna have reached a tipping point. Um, and by 2100, if we've still not changed our trajectory, that could spell, you know, the end of civilization as we know it. Um, and, you know, food security were going to start being an issue in you know the coming decade you know even more than it already is and you know all these 
humanitarian disasters that are already happening are going to just become so much more severe. I thought, well, yeah, we need to stop breaking the rules. You know, people have been in political parties trying to push for, you know, environmental policies for years and years, you know, um, and there's been entire conferences of, you know, climate scientists set up who have been advising government and they've done nothing about it. Um, so there comes a point when we really do need to start causing trouble. And I would have done it for, you know, against austerity because people are dying because of that. You know, anywhere, you know, where there's unnecessary suffering or there's going to be unnecessary suffering, you know, I've been willing to take that, take that risk um, for a while and to start taking more direct action. Um, but I suppose XR was the first opportunity that I had to do it. So, like, what sort of things do you consider to be direct action? Because actually, there's, in my experience, and I know you showed me a video before at a, at a meeting, and it was quite funny. It was something to do with people in a penguin suit or something. Um, there was, I'm sure there was something like that, but there's like kind of a lot of humor to it as well. So just so people know, can you also explain what direct action is? So I've introduced yeah. it without any context whatsoever. Yeah. What is direct action? And then tell me a few examples of things that you've done. Okay, so we have like traditional forms of protests and well, pickets, I suppose, can be direct action. Direct action is rather than saying we do not want this thing to happen and protesting saying we do not want this thing to happen. It's actually trying to stop it from happening by either putting your body in the way or, um, you know, what we did, we blocked roads in London uh, strategically to just bring the city to a halt because to draw attention to the fact that the system, you know, as it stands is killing us and, you know, is threatening the safety of future generations. And um, yeah, so it was to draw attention to, to that and to demand that the government commits to carbon neutrality by 2030. So, um, I ended up dressed up as a dodo. We, we did it in a really artistic way. So we had like a boat. We had five locations in London that were blocked. Um, one of them had a big multicolored like pink sailboat that you might have recognized. Um, and we were outside Westminster blocking the roundabout there. And it was really exciting. Um, but yeah, we all just took the decision that we were happy to get arrested and we, we took arrest training Um, not everyone like there were a fair lots of people who decided they weren't arrestable and just went to support Um, but yeah i ended up in a dodo outfit holding a sign that said do, don't just sit there do something i was just sat in the road <laughs> uh, singing songs with these like lovely nanas from lancashire um and some women from Yorkshire who've been like old women who've been crocheting like hats made out of bees and teaching us all these like really cute climate songs all day. <laughs> um, and then like loads of people of all ages um, from Scotland and the North, we were all kind of like in regions. And the police came and they were pulling us out one by one to try and clear the street. And I was singing, I've got quite a big gob. Um, and because I was like dressed up and I was singing, um, people were kind of like drawn in and were filming with their phones, passers by. Uh, and we had like drums and a choir and everything like that. And because it was like a bit of a spectacle, one of the police officers went, get the duck girl. 
um, and they moved in to come and get me. Um, and they, they they were trying to tell me, look, you're going to hurt the women next year. You know, they're old. You know, if, if we drag you out, there's a chance that they might get hurt. And this old woman just whispered in my ear, no, you're not. <laughs> you're doing amazing. Like that. And that's it. They dragged me away. Um, and my boyfriend, Michael, film, got the whole thing on film. And I think that must be the film, the video that you've seen. Um, but anyway, I got thrown in the back of a police van. And they were quite nice to me because, I don't know, I'm guessing because we're middle class and white, you know. Well, I'm working class, middle class passive, but a lot of middle class people, white people. Like, I've read all these arguments after in hindsight. And I do agree with them all. Like, you know, other groups of people would not have got away with doing that. Like if it had been, you know, people off the street in Hartlepool in sportswear, do you know what I mean? People, they wouldn't have got away with doing that. You know, they've been of ethnic minority backgrounds. Nah. Um, but it got climate on the agenda for the first time in years. Like it, I think it's the, they did pollen after and it were people's main concern after the election, what was it, what's the stat? People's like concern about climate was the highest it's ever been after that. And I think it shaped the Labour Party's policies about the Green New Deal. And, you know, we've, we've seen some movement, but not nearly enough since then. So I'm glad that I did it in hindsight. I'm not so sure how glad I'll be if we get like a fascist government in and they've got all my fingerprints and DNA. Um, but there we are. Well, we, we, we may be moving towards that as well, because it seems that that direct action has had a direct result, hasn't it, with um, with regards to the new police, is it called the Police and Crime Bill, where, yeah. they're, where they're introducing all sorts of restrictions on protest. Do you think that is in relation to, um, to Extinction Rebellion and the direct action you took, or do you think it's like, you know, Black Lives Matter? Do you think it's something else, you know? I think maybe it's a combination because you're telling me that, you know, the poll tax riots were so disruptive and, you know, all these strikes took up. I don't, I don't know that it's brand new. It's a brand new technique that's, you know, been, that's more disruptive than, you know, any other protests have been. I mean, there were some protests in the nineties that I learned about and it's crazy how like the history of these things gets wiped. But reclaim the streets, those protests against the motorways being carved across the country. They like had people, they went on really artistic and they had people with like stilts and stuff. And they smuggled, do you know the the things that get rid of concrete on building sites that are like they smuggled those and started ripping up the concrete and having a massive rave in the middle of the motorway. And you're telling me that, you know. Extinction Rebellion was so uniquely disruptive that, you know, we just have to pass these bills. I think they're always looking for excuses to pass these kinds of draconian bills that, you know, restrict our right to protest. And I think that they're bringing them in now because this summer is going to be the summer of discontent. I truly believe that um, the amount of people who are going to be laid off and, you know, the amount of shit that people have put up with and the amount of corruption that we've seen, I think they're trying to deter people from joining these protests and i think that's what it's really about um so i'm i'm a f 
fair whack older than you. And I was on the, um, on, uh, as a kid, I was on the poll tax marches, but I went under major and I remember them asking the, um, they asked the police when I was there, they were like, why are you not hitting us? Why are you not starting fights with us? Why are you not hitting us? And, uh, and their answer was, uh, we're under new management now. And it was after major had taken over from Thatcher. And I think it was kind of one of the last poll tax marches that there was, and then they got rid of it, you know? So, um, it's interesting. I wonder, do you think we might be about to bookend that? So what's going to be the response next time? You know, we, we've seen a lot of protests with Sarah Everard and, and, um, in the vigil there it wasn't even a protest. It was a vigil and you saw like uh, women being <laughs> women who with a genuine grievance against the Met being treated in such a way by the same police force that it, it is under such scrutiny and you know, under such pressure, they think they can get away with it. Do you think we might be heading into this kind of area there where you're not just going to get arrested, put in a van, treated reasonably nicely? Um, do you think it could get worse? It's a worry, but I don't think I'm really in a position to be able to, to make that call. I'm really not sure. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that it looks good on the police at the minute. I think from what I've seen, you know, the footage of down in Bristol when the police brutality is happening, the police seem quite conscious that they're being filmed and that they're being documented. So the, you know, purposely arresting press, I heard some of the police saying, we noticed that there's a lot of footage coming out about this. Um, you know, I don't think people are on their side necessarily. It's hard to tell because we're in a bit of a left-wing bubble and it's hard to, I know things can change very quickly and it's easy to think, you know, in this country, um, you know, that that kind of thing wouldn't happen here. Yeah, it's hard to say, I really couldn't call it, but I know that it's probably, it feels like it's on a knife edge, but with the amount of, you know, fear that's spread in the media, it's hard to see what's real and what's on the agenda in that sense. You know, I feel like people getting wildly different information, you know, they lied and said that the police have got broken bones, but then, you know, on left Twitter, you know, the information that the police released saying, you know, actually, no, none of our officers suffered broken bones. And we, because we're on the left, we've seen all these pictures of the activists, you know, bruises and um, from where they've been beaten horrifically with the batons, but not everyone gets that. You know, the people who are voting in this government, they'll just be watching Sky News and, you know, our poor brave boys in blue have, have had broken collarbones, which turns out not to be true. So it's hard to tell what other people are thinking. And that's scary in and of itself, because, you know, how can you assess the reality of a situation and respond to it if everyone's reality is completely different? It's a point that you could relate to as well. Like, so a lot of people from from around where I live, you know, they, they understand what the police did in Easington when, when they occupied Easington during the miners' strike. And, uh, they, you know, the, there are many examples of when they know the police have behaved in a way that wasn't really to protect the people, it was to protect the interests of government. And it could be something that like you can find a lot of common ground with on people. And yet, as you say, that isn't really in the, in the mainstream narrative at all, is it? Like, you know, you know, like, like a lot of things that are going on at the moment, like all the Tory corruption and everything like that, 
people aren't bothered about that. They're more bothered about, like, you know, some sort of, I don't know, left-wing smears or whatever. And we, we, we're, we're going to do these awful things that are totally ill-defined. Um, so, yeah, I, I get the worry around, um, around the narrative and whether people actually understand that. Is there any way, do you, like, have you got any ideas around how you would combat that and how you would get that information out to more people? Because as you say, like even Twitter seems to be left-wing bubbles. You see the people you want to see, you follow the people you want to follow. I think getting out there in the community is going to be the best thing. So like I've been doing a podcast called Last Cast and you know, we're thinking we'd like to go out with microphones and just ask people questions about you know, their opinions on certain things or how they think uh, things should be run in the town. Um, you know, to, to kind of build trust again in each other um, and to see that, you know, maybe what we want and, you know, our interests are kind of the same. Uh, there's been a massive effort to polarise people and to make people fear and suspicious of each other. Um, and I think, you know, we live such atomised lives where you know, in our own homes, you know, there are very few community spaces left. And, and anyway, you know, when you're in public, chat about politics is kind of discouraged as well. Um, and now everything's just become a, you know, shouting match, you know, our exposure, like a lot of people's exposure to politics will be like, um, feminist destroyed and triggered and, you know, just extremely kind of well, violent, not violent, but, you know, aggressive disagreement and, you know, you've got to choose your camp and you're going to destroy each other. And, um, you know, it's not really conducive to having a proper nice discussion about politics and, you know, to get people involved, it's not inviting. It's made out to be like a gladiator's arena. Um, so I think, yeah, getting out and having conversations with people is probably going to be the way to do it. And also, showing people what your politics is not by talking and telling them but by showing them what it is so mutual aid um you know just fixing problems in your community in you know at, at the minute i'm trying to set up in hartlepool because they've got one in newcastle uh, food sharing out of phone boxes you know literally the concept is if you've got food you put it in there and if you want food you take it out so that's a better way of showing people how socialism would work. Imagine if we had more resources to share together um, than, you know, talking to them on, at election time on the doorstep, you know, until you give people something or show people how it works. You could just be any of the other crazy street preachers. Do you know what I mean? Leading by example. That's, uh, that's good news. And it's really good news to hear that you're going to do that with Last Cast because um, we love Last Cast here um, it, on Socialist Think Tank. We we really do. And um, we've really loved that. And the idea that like, of a lockdown, a lot of people through lockdown have started doing things like podcasts, but the idea that you're planning beyond that, because I think um, we were originally Socialist Think Tank, were, were, we were going to do this anyway before lockdown. And we had like a proper film crew and everything at like Trimden Station Community Centre. And it was like, it was quite fun. Um, Charlotte was involved, actually. She was there um, and we were going to do it. But then it kind of became easier to do 
during <laughs> lockdown. It became much easier to do that. But like, it's nice to know that you've got plans to get out there and, and do things in the community. That's going to be a, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm definitely going to listen to you doing that when we're finally allowed to go and do things. Um, so that's, I suppose that brings me on to like, um, what your hopes for the future are. So what can we do? Do you think with socialism, like, you know, what, what, like what can we achieve through socialism or whatever methods that you want to take? What can we do or direct action or anything like that? What can we achieve? What happened? There might be examples in here, I suppose, of things that we already have achieved. Yeah. So I work in schools and I'm really passionate about the kids having, you know, the best start in life, as everyone would say that they are. But so talent is spread evenly, but opportunity isn't. And just seeing the way that kids in these Northern Academy schools are systematically held back, be it because of poverty or just because we don't have that many te many teachers per child. And, you know, the children that are at school aren't necessarily ready to learn because they've got things going on at home. You know, they've suffered trauma because their parents were traumatized and, you know, none of that's been worked through. Um, just what, a waste of human potential that is you know imagine what things could be like if you know every child had a really good education and you know no families had to worry about um food being on the table and not only that but like imagine if people could work in a way that benefits society and benefits their community um you know and build that community and you know if, if everyone's um, you know, vision was considered in the making of society because it might seem idealistic, but like I think literally all we need is you know food, healthcare, you know the basics. That's all we need. You know, all these you know millions of people that we've got in this country and on the planet, like we can meet people's needs so easily, and then you know everything extra to that, you know we can get really creative <laughs> with that and you know so many people are in bullshit jobs that don't add anything real to society you know they're not contributing to our needs if anything you know they're detracting from what's important so, uh, so much of our time is just trapped in making money for people who already have shit loads of money mm. you know while people down the street haven't got enough to put their heating on how disgusting is that it doesn't make any sense. And when you explain it to anyone in those terms, they're just like, well, everyone's disgusted by that. Well, 99% of people are disgusted by that. Yeah, literally. And, you know, Burns in Hartlepool should have the same opportunity as a kid at Eton. Full stop. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, not complex. <laughs> um, you know, we'd only need, I've been to private schools. And my degree, I got invited to a private school in Leeds. And I walked around and the teaching wasn't any different. Like the te I've seen better teachers in state schools than I did in that private school. But the difference was there were only 12 kids in the class and all of those kids like emotional needs and you know, basic needs were completely met. They were getting healthy food, nice warm, safe bed and people, you know, there to take care of them. And then they had all these, you know, extracurricular activities 
that you know weren't aren't going to break the bank to allow all children to have it you know they had a swimming pool they had like an estate that they could go run in the woods and sports after school and you know if you compare what kids in private schools achieve versus what kids in state schools achieve you know it's not unthinkable that we could provide that to every child and then what would our societies be like you know if people you know had the freedom to go and pursue whatever career they wanted or art or and you know it's the types of knowledge that are valued are only the types of knowledge that are going to make you a shitloads of money as well rather than looking you know can we put resources into this skill not because it makes loads of profit but because it's really going to enrich people's lives and allocating resources to that rather than the profit side of it you know things could be unimaginably different and we we could you know collectively it'll never happen but like you know we could wake up tomorrow and just rewrite the future i've always thought like that but people think i'm crazy but it's we literally create this reality and we create collectively these communities and they could be so much better and that's why i'm a socialist that's absolutely like it, it is it is inspiring when you say that as well because like you know and we talked about bullshit jobs and if those resources you know if people weren't doing those bullshit jobs because a lot of those bullshit jobs do create work for other people like a lot of the bullshit jobs are there to check on other people and tick boxes and they're often well paid but one of my favorite bits about that whole thing was the idea that um some people who aren't who are in bullshit jobs that might be well paid think that people who aren't in bullshit jobs don't deserve to be paid as well as them because they're in bullshit jobs so because their jobs are so useless and so terrible there's this this hero thing so you're you're a hero you're a, you're a teacher or you're a nurse or you're you know you're doing something that actually has value how dare you? How dare you expect to be paid for that? That's just like a vocational thing, you know, and, and there's that attitude as well from these people who, who produce an absolutely nothing and and then, you know, really resentful of other people who do and think they shouldn't be That's paid. really interesting because it kind of links into, um, there's some eco-feminist um, writers and they say, they argue that, uh, because women have carried out social reproductive work for free for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, that women shouldn't be paid for that. They should just carry it out because it's it makes them feel good and it's their purpose in life. And, you know, it's not real work because you enjoy it and you get something out of it. You get to see the fruits of your labour and it's satisfying and that's all you need to get through life. And what a wonky way of looking at things like it's just complete upside down land isn't it it's mental <laughs> why do we why oh, it's like people need to suffer if people aren't suffering as much as me <laughs> like suffering is good do you think yeah, well, yeah, in all cultures or whether it's just specific to like you know like jesus on the cross suffering and you know for us and i don't know is it written I think it's um I think it's capitalist yeah. culture. I think it's um it's anyone well you know well you know we're not, if they're doing that and they're enjoying it and it, you know but 
I've seen people doing really, really weird jobs in the past. So like I've, I've got away on a course and stuff and I've seen, uh, I've seen some people whose job appears to be having breakfast with people and talking about stuff on the golf course. And they're like in these really nice places and they're like, yep, yep. I'm at work. Yep. Yep. Doing this thing. Great. Having a, having a breakfast meeting. Yep. Yep. And they'll, they'll just talk about stuff. Meanwhile, the people who are actually working in those businesses, not doing these the deals on the golf course, slugging the guts out for minimum wage. But it's interesting that you like link that to reproductive labor as well. And people don't even think of that as being as being labor at all, do they? Yeah. Oh no, not at all. They don't. And you know, all this work that goes into you know bringing up kids and educating the next generation and keeping people fit and healthy. Um, Capitalism wouldn't exist if those if that work wasn't carried out, and yet it's assigned no value uh, in the capitalist system. You know, really, um, which is completely it doesn't make any sense. In the same way as you know, exploiting and degrading the earth doesn't make sense because you know we can't reproduce the conditions to continue living. Full stop. Um, if you know, we don't have a planet or social reproductive work isn't carried out. So to treat these things like finite, you know, like endless, you know, a resource that's going to be endlessly replenished and eat away into our reserves until there's nothing left is completely, doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, since, you know, women now, they say, that before men might have been paid enough so that they could have a wife at home doing the social reproductive labor. But then, you know, we've got two parent households, um, but, you know, less and less time is left for families to, to do that social reproductive work that's really important. Um, and then, you know, you see child mental health is suffering and, you know, well, everyone's mental health is suffering really. And I do think that, you know, we need to assign real value and pay parents to parent, you know, enough so that they can take time off to actually, you know, take care of themselves and their children. Because people are just working way too hard and for what? Would <laughs> just to make people richer at the expense of everything, basically, you know. The thing is, like people working all the time to generate all this surplus profit and to keep growing the economy and growing the economy. Um, we're literally killing ourselves and we're accelerating our way to this destruction. Yeah, it's, um, it's such a worry that like we're in this system. So I suppose that's what like socialism needs to combat, doesn't it? Rather than, rather than having this system that is always about like more and more wealth and more and more greed. And it's something, it's something different. And surely that must be attractive to people. The idea that we can do something entirely different, like, you know, in the, I, I think it was Keynes who um, predicted that by now we'd be on a three day work and week maximum. And the idea, but we're working more than ever, you know, like the people have never worked hourly as many as much as we do now and yet there are still people unemployed and yet there are people in bullshit jobs and we've got robots and you know a lot of the work we do is pointless and there's still plenty of socially productive work to do 
So, like, how do you think socialism would deliver that? Like, it, is, is it possible for socialism to deliver just something better, something better than we have now? Of course, it'd be, <laughs> it'd be uh, hard not to, really, with how, you know, much inequality and injustice there is in the world. Um, but definitely paying people to do jobs that have a clear benefit to society and cutting off the excess that's not needed you know that's only function is there to to generate more money for the already wealthy you know we could get rid of those jobs straight away um so like jobs in finance and um you know jobs i've got loads of friends who work in a call center in barnsley and it's their job to pester nanons to give money to charities and like one of my friends really were upset doing it because you know you get these women on your list it were clearly poor you'd ask them for 20 pounds and then like the next day you had to ring them up and ask them for 15 pounds and you know give them this yeah so she refused to do it and she got disciplined and ended up leaving but that's the biggest employer in Barnsley is loads of young people spending most of their waking hours pestering basically nanons that have got very little money uh, and trying to guilt trip them into giving money to these charities. But it's not the charity that gets the money, it's the corporation who run the call centre, Capita. You know, those thousands of hours of people's time that they're not going to get back. The waste of resources to run that office. You know, it's just a waste. <laughs> and these people could be put to work or they could even be at home taking care of themselves and enriching their their own lives and their families' lives and wouldn't that be you know more times you know time better spent we've got a climate crisis you know we need to be going around making people's homes energy efficient and you know rewilding the earth and um growing food in more sustainable ways that might take more labor power uh, but that will ensure that we've got a safe environment to pass on to our children. You know, this is all really, really useful work that needs to be done. But instead, we've got pe young people getting back problems and mental health problems, sat in call centres, pestering poor people to give them the money to give it to a bloody big boss who's on a yacht somewhere. Why? Exactly. Um... I think that's a really good point to end on. Um, <laughs> you know, you've been absolutely incredible, Lauren. So thank you so much for doing for doing this. And I bet you that loads of people will now want to listen to Last Cast because they'll get to hear a lot more of you on there and different opinions that you have. So on behalf of Socialist Think Tank, thank you so much. And uh, anything final to say? No, thank you so much for having me. Like, it's really nice to make this space to think about what we want the world to be like. And it's got me thinking. So yeah, cheers. We'll keep the red flag flying here.